Welcome back, everybody, to Repeal the 20th Century. Today I have with me uh, Dr. Jonathan Newman. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself today? Sure. Hi, my name is Jonathan Newman. I'm an assistant professor of economics and finance at Bryan College. We're in Dayton, Tennessee, and I'm an associated scholar of the Mises Institute, and I'm happy to be here on the show. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you on. Um, you know, I find you a very down-to-earth person you know when we met at Mises U I enjoyed uh, the little conversations we did have but I'll also just over Twitter as well um, you're also very much on point uh, I think a lot of people um, with the Mises Institute just because they're up there in age they're not as active on social media but uh, I think you really uh, give a good presenting for you know the Mises Institute on a whole uh, for a social media presence well, that's a big responsibility. Uh, I, my my rule of thumb for uh, doing stuff on Twitter and social media in general is to just have fun. So, I think more more often than not, especially lately, I'm I'm doing more of the jokes and having fun as opposed to you know posting the serious econ stuff. Yeah, no, and I appreciate that. But I also, you know, when you do do the serious econ stuff, I think you have a lot of good. Um, analysis on it and you put it very well which is why I wanted to have you on uh, because I've seen you talk about inflation a lot um, get into a lot of interesting conversations on social media and various other places um, particularly on inflation so I wanted to talk to you about that the first thing that really stood out to me is I saw you have a conversation on um, how uh, about the Rothbardian definition of inflation um, because I think a lot of people have conflicting definitions of inflation. So I just wanted to ask you about the Rothbardian definition of inflation, what you think it is, and um, how it applies to what's currently going on. Sure. Uh, in uh, Man, Economy, and State, Rothbard defines inflation as an increase in uh, the supply of, of money beyond specie. So usually an increase in the supply of money substitutes in the form of banknotes. So banks expand credit and there's new banknotes issued and it's in excess of the supply of gold. Most of Rothbard's examples in Manicon State involve gold as being the money. <clears throat> so that, that was his definition. Although I've seen him, you know, he's not, he understands that people use the term inflation commonly to uh, refer to an increase in the level of prices in general. Uh, and so I've seen him use that in other locations, but in Manicotti State, in the, the tweet that you're talking about, I was referring to his definition in, in Manicotti and State. I do think that's a good definition. And the reason why is because all sorts of things can cause a change in the price level. All, all sorts of things can cause prices to change. But if we really wanted to, to pin down the what primarily and what is the, the main cause of changes in prices, especially in a fiat money regime with uh, fractional reserve banking, then we would definitely have to say that it's an increase in the supply of money. Uh, so so that's that's why I, I think Rothbard's definition is best. And, and you asked why is it relevant today? Well, we've seen huge increases in the supply of money, um, especially since the last financial crisis. It was unprecedented then, but even in the past couple of years, it's it, it's been huge in terms of the the number of new dollars that are circulating. Well, I shouldn't say circulating, but in people's hands. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that definition as well, and um, I, I've seen Rothbard use it not just in Man, Economy, and State, but other uh, books on that, that approach the subject. But I think um, why it's important to distinguish you know, that definition is because I think people are constantly using different definitions. Uh, in particular, what strikes out to me is uh, Professor w Richard Wolff, when he wrote that, uh, or I can't remember if he wrote it or if he was just tweeting it out, but he put out an article on Twitter that was, you know, price changes are, or inflation is when uh, corporations get really greedy and decide <laughs> they need more profits. And I am like, well, where is he getting this definition of inflation? Why does he call that, de you know, inflation? And where are we actually seeing that? And, um, you know, it, obviously the answer is we're not seeing that. We're not seeing price increases, these massive price increases just because corporations are suddenly getting... Uh, very greedy. But what I wanted to ask you about uh, is probably more the Keynesian definitions and, um, you know, just kind of this thing that, you know, it's just when we see price increases. Why why isn't inflation just when we see price increases, particularly? Well, uh, like I said, there's, um, there's all sorts of things that can cause prices to change. So, uh, you could talk about changes in the demand for money, changes uh, in the supply of money, changes in the quantity of goods. Uh, all, all sorts of things can cause prices to go up and down. And so when you try to when you try to say that we have inflation just when prices are going up, that's not really descriptive. Like the, the reason we have terms is so that we can describe the situations that we're seeing. And if if we want to call an increase in prices inflation, that might be fine, but then we're going to have to come up with another sort of uh, dis another word that would describe the case where the price level in general rises as a result of an increase in the money supply in a counterfactual sense, like higher than it otherwise would have been absent the increase in the money supply. So, I, my my thing about terms and definitions is that they don't really matter as long as we all agree on what what terms to use. But when it comes to when it comes to the term inflation, we should stick with the older definition, I think. And, and it is the older definition. If you look at older dic dictionaries, it'll, and you look up the word inflation, it says that it was uh, an increase in the currency or something like that. Um, <clears throat> but if, so we, we should go back to that older definition. Uh, it seems to be a better way to define, describe, and explain the situation in which there's an increase in the money supply and as a result of that it's a cause and effect as a result of that there's a, a change in the level of prices if we if we just refer to the effect of that then it's it becomes all wishy-washy it's like well yeah there was a, this change in the money supply but there was also this you know change in the demand for money there was this uh, change in the supply of goods because of a natural disaster or a pandemic or something like that so if if we're just looking at the effects the consequences of these things and, and trying to assign a, a name for that, then it becomes more difficult to pinpoint the particular causes of changes in prices. All right, yeah. No, um, I think that, that that's a good explanation of that. But uh, while we're still on kind of just like the basics of inflation before we get into the nitty gritty about, you know, what's going on right now with inflation, um, since 
I think the Rothbardian definition, which you established, is also just the old definition of inflation is different from what a lot of people are saying is the definition of inflation now. I want to ask inversely then, what do you think deflation is? What causes deflation? Is it just literally the taking out of currency out of the money supply, or is there a little more to, to add on there? Yeah, so I would say a deflation would happen when, well, there are a bunch of different circumstances by which you can have inflation or deflation, uh, but you could have it um, a deflation if you decrease the supply of banknotes relative to the, the amount of gold in the system. That would be the inverse of Rothbard's definition of inflation. So like you can have an inflation, so there's a swelling of notes on top of gold, and then uh, afterwards, like in the, in the bust perhaps of a business cycle, you could have all of these banknotes come in and they don't go back. They don't go back out, and so you have a deflation in that sense, where you keep the the amount of gold in the in the system the same, but you decrease the amount of banknotes. So we could uh, call that uh, deflation. There's also like growth deflation, where the money supply stays relatively constant, but there's an increase in the supply of uh, goods and services as a result of increases in productivity, and so prices in general decrease as a result. And usually, I mean, the term that's usually applied to that is is growth deflation. Um, I when I'm teaching classes, I don't, especially with undergraduates, I don't really get into all the weeds here. I usually do mention that the the definition of inflation has changed, and as a result of that, I try to I try to just say monetary inflation or money inflation and price inflation. So I always put that clarifier, put that modifier out out front, so that so that it doesn't confuse my students who have heard people use the term inflation to refer to changes in the level of prices that way so when i'm teaching my students i'm not like i'm not saying everybody must be using the rothbardian definition because i gotta I have to take them as they are you know and they've heard the, the term inflation used so much so what i do is i i just put that extra word out front so if i'm referring to a change in the level of prices i'll call it price inflation if i'm referring to a change in the money supply then i'll call it money monetary inflation or something like that Okay, so now that I think we've kind of established terms, I do want to get into what we're seeing now, which I think, based on the terms, it's accurate to call it price inflation. Um, la when I was looking at the numbers today, based on the latest CPI, we're looking at about 7% inflation nationwide. Uh, but then if you break it down by goods, I believe food is something around uh, 6% energy is something like 21% I believe and then all other goods is about somewhere in 3 to 4% range um, why are we seeing this price inflation now um, I, I because I think a lot of people are getting a lot of different explanations I think you know obviously there's the um, constant of well, the Fed is printing more money, so we're going to see more inflation, or we're just seeing the natural over time, you know, prices just increase because, uh, you know, we have more money in the money supply. Some people are saying it's because of COVID and, and, and lockdown policies. Other people are saying it's because of increases in government spending. So I want to just get what is your... Um, diagnosis of why we're seeing these massive price inflation. Well, I think you just about covered it. Um, I'm I'm not 
the type who likes to say that there's one cause mm -hmm. uh, because obviously the real world is complex there's all sorts of things changing all the time and especially in the case of uh, of covid both the the virus and the government response to it um, as well as the increases in the money supply that we've seen and the the way that it was channeled into the economy so there were th these massive stimulus checks that were given um, earlier on um, so that all of these things combined will result uh, in the higher prices that we're seeing today and also the the chaos of it all so it's not as Mises um, emphasized over and over again there's no such thing as a proportional level price change so it's not like the all goods and services increase in price to the same extent at the same time like you mentioned when you break it down by category even the government's official statistics that are broken down by categories you'll notice some are up 20 some are you know down one others are up you know 15 or something like that so there's all these different uh all these different changes in the prices of particular categories of goods and this seems to be based on the fact that the supply chains are all uh, messed up for certain goods like some things are produced in in countries where it's they're not producing as much because their government is doing something really restrictive other goods are produced in other countries where the government's doing something totally different um, as as well as all of the all of the repercussions of the the when the government locked down in the United States and people were laid off of work you can't just you know pause the economy there's going to be lasting effects for years due to that one policy where people, if you weren't deemed essential by the U.S. government or by the different state governments, then uh, you were told to stay home and not work. And so a lot of people got laid off. And like I said, you can't just pause the economy and expect it to just resume as soon as you press play again. So all, all of this combined has resulted in the different price changes that we've seen today. Uh, what we can say as a matter of 100% certainty is that prices are higher now than they otherwise would have been absent the, the increase in the money supply. So that's why, that's why Austrians especially can be 100% confident in saying that, that no matter what the price level does, an increase in the money supply causes high, a higher level of prices than it otherwise would have been. So, I mean, it's just, um, that, that's one of the 100% certain things that we could say in all this mess is we can compare one state of affairs, one actual course of events to the, to the counterfactual course of events and say, we know that this would be different than if there wasn't this intervention in money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that you're definitely right in saying that it's, it's troublesome when I see, uh, see people say, well, we're seeing price inflation because of this rather than there is a lot of going on factors. I think something in particular that, um, you know, we, we talk about, but we don't talk about in relation to price inflation uh, enough is um, the, sh the, the labor shortages in particular. You know, we saw a very weird uh, thing, mostly due to the government's response to COVID and the way that those policies shape, where we saw lots of people getting laid off from their work. But once the jobs were coming back, you know, we saw new job creation. Um, nobody wanted to get back to work. 
and I think that particularly was because of unemployment insurance and unemployment benefits. But, you know, and we're still seeing it now, you know. I can go to my local Chili's and it could be closing on a Friday at 4 p.m. because they don't have anybody to work after 4 p.m. And, you know, just a few years ago that was unheard of. Um, and I think that that, that is a major contributions to the price inflation. But I wanted to ask you on that is that, um, you know, if we had to if we had to pinpoint one thing that was you know or or one policy particularly that was causing the price inflation the most and that if we reversed we'd probably see um you know we'd stop seeing this trend what what policy would that be or is there no one policy really that we could look at well i I, I think I would go back to the money supply increases. So I think you, and, and the reason why is because there's really, it's a, it's a fork with two prongs on it. There's the, the general price level uh, increase that's associated with people having more money because they can increase their demands for goods and services. So when there's more money and, and there's, everybody has more money than they want to hold on to, then they'll go spend it and bid the prices of all goods and services up. Um, but the other thing is that you also expand the size and scope of government. So when, when the government is the first one who could spend all this brand new money and they're you know, sending out checks and paying for this and paying for that, um, that, that has two different effects. First of all, they're increasing their own demands for uh, goods and services, but they're also causing all of these different uh, uh, distortions in the market that usually result in a decrease in the quantity of goods supplied. So you see the there's a decrease in goods, but also increase in demand for, for goods, both among consumers broadly, but also the government itself. So we, we definitely can't neglect that fact, that, that particular implication of inflation, uh, which is that the government can increase in size and scope. Um, that, that definitely also plays into all of the increase in, in the prices that we see. Yeah, and, and I have... I have to agree with you there, and I think that that m distortion that we're seeing, the one you just described, is exactly why we saw that labor shortage is because, you know, when we did see this increase in the supply of money, uh, particularly to, you know, pay for these stimulus checks for these unemployment insurance, we saw where a bunch of new supply was, um, <clears throat> or sorry, there was a lot more demand for laborers, but the supply for laborers was cut off by, you know, incentives to not be a laborer, um, to, to really just not enter the job force at all. Uh, so I, I guess I wanted to go into now uh, more what do we do to, to, to reverse this course, you know, what can we do to reverse this course and, and try to offset inflation um not just price inflation but obviously uh the inflate uh inflation as the quantity of money that we're seeing circulating well there's two there's two sources of increases in the money supply there's the, the central bank which has the uh authority that is delegated to it by congress and there, you can have the debate over whether or not that was a legitimate transfer of of authority um, but 
So the Federal Reserve, the central bank of the United States, has the ability to increase and decrease the supply of dollars uh, simply by creating reserves. So they buy uh, assets from the from banks and other financial institutions, and when they do that, they buy it with money that didn't exist before. So they have this unlimited spending ability. Um, so that's one source of new dollars. And so if we, like you asked, how can we get rid of this? Well, one thing that we could do is we could end the Fed. We could just <laughs> get rid of the central bank. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure that that's a politically feasible thing to do, but that's the answer to your question. Uh, get rid of or somehow restrain the Fed. Um, and there's, I've seen a bunch of different ideas on how to do how to restrain it. Um, I'm not sure how confident I am um, in those schemes, that strategy, simply because, I mean, if somebody has the ability to print brand new dollars, how how easily would it be to take that power away from them? So it seems, it seems uh, I, I don't know, I just don't see that there's like a good feasible way to do that. It seems like the best way is to just, you know, hack it to pieces, end it. Um, but the other source of new money is the is the banking system itself through fractional reserve banking. Uh, when the bank has a certain amount of, of money in it, but then they expand loans, we get overlapping claims on the same money. So one person uh, one person's deposit turns into you know ten different people's uh, spendability. So there's an a, an overlap of purchasing power based on a given money supply. So another thing that we could do is we could end fractional reserve banking. Um, those two things are, are the only two things that cause a, a fiat money, especially to, to increase and decrease. If we went back to a gold standard, that would be good. It's more difficult for, uh, like if we did nothing else, it's more difficult for banks to extend credit uh, and it's more difficult for central banks to, to do the same, um, to expand the supply of money when they're constrained by the supply of gold in the system. Um, and, th and it was that constraint that led us to abandon the gold system in the first place. It was like, well, we can't redeem all these foreign governments' demands for for gold, so we're just gonna stop doing that. <laughs> so we're just gonna, you know, end all the convertibility for gold. So you know, going back to a commodity money system, ending fractional reserve banking, ending central banks, all all of these things would uh, get rid of the ability for humans to just willy nilly increase the money supply mm -hmm. of course uh you do you do have increases in the supply of money if you have something like a gold standard because people can mine more gold but the the thing about that is that t the only way to mine more gold is if it's profitable to do so which means that the cost of the fact of the factors of production have to go down the prices of those factors that go into uh, mining gold have to decrease first uh for it to be profitable to make more money and that so, so the way that new money is created in a commodity money system is based on a change in the market data. It's based on a change in consumer preferences for the factors of production that have alternative uses and for, for gold itself. And in the case of gold, it's got some non-monetary uses, which means that an increase in the production of gold doesn't necessarily mean that there, there's gonna be an increase in the money supply because the increase in the supply of gold could go towards decorative or industrial purposes. Yeah, that was a really long question. <laughs> no, I think it is a very sufficient one, but I did want to ask about one component of it more in depth because I think a lot of people um, who are not 
more versed in the econ side of things, you know, if they're not a PhD student for econ or uh, have a PhD themselves, they don't really get into it. But I have noticed that it is a big debate among Austrians, particularly. Um, it, it seems to be one of the biggest dividing things on the economic side of it, and that is the the fractional reserve banking and um, free ba free banking. So I just wanted to ask quickly, um, for those who are less inclined to it, uh, why, you know, could we get, why is getting rid of fractional banking not only good, um, but, you know, how do we account for, you know, for example, banks now particularly, they depend on fractional reserve banking to give out loans and then collect interest on it to create a profit. How would that work without fractional reserve banking, you know, or would it not work at well, all? And why is that beneficial? One uh, interesting uh, thing that happened recently is that the coronavirus reserves has increased hugely mm -hmm. over the past, you know, 10 years. And there, I think there was one point I've seen people write about this. I haven't done a lot of research into it. But I think there was one point where it would have been easy for us to just transition to full reserve banking because banks had accumulated so many reserves, either because they were they were uh, reluctant to lend or there, there uh, weren't any uh, credit worthy borrowers that they could lend to. Um, and I know that there's this there's not the, the relationship that of reserves and, and lending that um, is implied by some of the earlier textbooks on money and banking. But it's it's still the case where banks had all of these reserves, and, and we could have we could have kept a one to one ratio at some point uh, between uh, reserves and deposits. Um, so, I, the reason that would be good, I think that was uh, your first question, is that we wouldn't have increases in the money supply come through, or at least one reason we wouldn't have increases in the money supply come through credit markets. So since banks are financial intermediaries. Whenever they expand deposits, whenever they multiply deposits, and it comes into the economy in the form of loans, like home loans or car loans or whatever sorts of loans, uh, which means that it has this uh, particular sort of Cantillon effect. Uh, Cantillon effects refer to the unevenness and in increases in the money supply. Um, that usually we refer to Cantillon effects as affecting uh, uh, relative prices, but but it can refer to the unevenness just in general. But when all that money comes in through credit markets, it has this effect on, on interest rates throughout the economy. And so entrepreneurs start all these uh, new projects that can't be completed. And we have the Austrian business cycle. Um, another issue with, uh, so th that was really brief, I know, but we can talk about it more if you want to. Another issue with uh, fractional reserve banking and why it would be good to stop it is there's not a, um, there's not a limit on lending that's based on profit and loss. So the production of all goods and services in a market economy is, is uh, regulated by profit and loss. Producers will pursue profitable production and they'll avoid unprofitable uh, production. And in that way, we economize our use of resources. But we can't say that the use of, of, of deposits to as a basis for loans, we can't we can't say that that's economizing. And the reason why is because banks will just do it as much as possible. That, so if they can just earn interest on top of money that's that's just sitting there, 
they'll do it they'll do it to their heart's content um and there are all sorts of incent other incentives that would prevent them from doing that like they're worried about you know their neighbor bank uh coming in and trying to redeem their bank notes but the point is that it's not based on it's not based on a profit and loss mechanism like we see in the other parts of the economy which means that we get cases where there's you know too much or too little probably too much because <laughs> of the incentives yeah i i I think that's interesting and and it is something that you know I don't think is explored as much because um, it is more of an econ heavy thing because most people just want to talk about the Fed when they talk about um, inflation um, particularly price inflation they want to talk about the Fed and its role in increasing the money supply and, and causing these price increases uh, whether directly or indirectly and but i don't think people talk about private banks enough which is something i'm surprised by because rothbard in multiple books he goes you know very critical of banks and their role that they play in creating business cycles um under austrian business cycle theory which uh i guess leads into another thing i wanted to ask you that is related to the inflation topic but it's also related to business cycles and um that being uh are, is this inflation that we're seeing um particularly the price inflation uh part of the the you know a or are we seeing a massive credit bubble at the moment that's going to pop or are we just going to see the fed try to repair this bubble as they have before and keep inflating it until you know it grows bigger and bigger and then we go through this process all over again. Well, I think uh, I think we are seeing a, the growth of a credit bubble because we're seeing the increases in the money supply, and we're also seeing growth in different types of credit, um, especially uh, uh, mortgages and auto loans. Last time I looked at the data, so there's there's definitely more uh, lending going on, um, and it's coincident with it, go, it goes along with the increases in the in the money supply and one one thing that we learned about uh booms and busts in austrian business cycle theory is that the bust is unavoidable it's like you you can't increase the supply of artificially increase the supply of credit without a bust some at some point in the future now mises did talk about two different ways that uh that can play out so you can have the the normal bust where interest rates rise due to uh, consumers, um, you know, reinstating their own uh, time preferences. Um, so there's that, there's one way where we just naturally go into a bust. But like you said, what if the, what if the Fed or the central bank just doubles down on it? What if they, you know, they see that there's this bust coming. And so they try to revive all the spending. They try to revive all the demand um, with additional money printing. And, and what if they just keep doing that? And they're going to have to print more and more. You still have a bust, but it just comes in the form of a hyperinflation or what, uh, what uh, Mises called a crack-up boom. So you have this, uh, the, money, the money itself, the value goes to zero, and you have monetary replacement. Um, and we saw that in, uh, in uh, Zimbabwe and also in uh, Weimar, Germany, and other, and other places where the money, like people are, like that happens when you see money being carried around in wheelbarrows <laughs> where it, it, it takes a, a huge supply of the paper itself to, to buy even normal day-to-day -day, uh, 
goods. So, so there there are two ways that we can have the bus. There's one where it's you know regular, like we saw with the financial crisis and with the with the Great Depression. Not that those were you know regular or normal or desire desirable. But the other way is what if the what if the central bank doubles down on it and they just keep trying to push interest rates down and keep uh, trying to maintain the level of demand for all of these malinvestments, all of these uh, lines of production that would be unprofitable if the demand would ever decrease. But if you can just keep stimulating, if you can keep uh, pumping up the demand with money, then eventually you'll, you'll still end up with the bust, but it comes in the form of a, of a crack-up boom or a hyperinflation. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting you bring that up because I was going to, to lead that into um, whether or not we were seeing something like the financial crisis we saw in 2008. Uh, but before that, I, uh, I wanted to kind of bring it back to uh, right before COVID, I think we were seeing some of some of that because we were seeing increases in inflation um price inflation particularly in late 2019 and early 2020 uh but then you know covid happened that overshadowed everything and i think actually uh covid at first was actually doing a lot for um stopping inflation if it was all but temporary and you know i think the fed also doubled down on it as you said and now that's what we're seeing now and I wanted to ask if you thought that that was kind of a correct analysis or is there a little more that you wanted to add on there? Because I think I think that we are seeing that parallel uh, to what we were just seeing pre-COVID and now we're seeing as the pandemic's winding down. Yeah, I think there's something to that. I think uh, I think we were seeing we were starting to see the turning point of the boom right before COVID hit people's radar, right before COVID was on everybody's news feeds and was on everybody's minds and governments started scrambling to you know, take advantage of the situation. Um, right before that, we were starting to see like a, a turning point in markets where it looked like we were about to have a big crash. So a lot of, a lot of people, well, I shouldn't say a lot, a few people have said that we had like a, a double whammy in 2020 where we had this, uh, this crash that was associated with, you know, a, a, the liquidation that we were ready for, the liquidation of, of malinvested uh, projects. But at the same time, we also had all of the stuff associated with, uh, with COVID. Um, but that's, that's interesting that you said that, what if, there, what if that sort of nullified some of it and maybe we've just kicked the can down the road? I think that's also plausible. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm definitely not optimistic um, <laughs> if that's, where you're going with i'm not optimistic about the trajectory of the u.s economy yeah Um, i i mean even even though i'm not optimistic i'm i'm not i'm not in a spot where i can say you know by the end of this year we're going to have a crash or by the end of next year or or you know five years from now we're going to have a totally different currency than one we have now yeah i I was going to say um because i definitely wasn't trying to imply it was positive or or Uh, (laughs) or to be optimistic about it but more of just like we saw something strange i think covid has been strange on the numerous um on numerous levels not just for economics but everything in general 
But where I wanted to take that too is that uh, I think we are seeing a lot of parallels though also with the 2008 financial crisis, particularly with housing. Um, as you were just, you know, talking about, we, we, in 2008, we saw the demand for housing just explode. People were buying and selling houses all over the place. And a lot of that was, you know, the, the, the artificially low interest rates. And we can talk about all the Fed policy, um, which you're well aware of. And I think uh, most libertarians at this point are well aware of. But I think we're seeing it again, um, you know, using... I'm going to use somewhere I used to live as a very good um, example of this, Austin, Texas. I think Austin, Texas is a great example of where the housing market has just exploded like w what we saw before the financial crisis in 2008. Um, houses that were in the low 100,000s are worth uh, close to 2 million, maybe more. Uh, and we're seeing this, you know, buying and trading of housing all over the place. And um, even where I live now, upstate New York, we're seeing it a little bit, too, because we're seeing some people who went from uh, who went from Texas up here to upstate New York, buying up housings. And slowly we're seeing that increase in rise in houses. And I wanted to ask you moving from Texas to New York. <laughs> yeah, I uh, the craziest <laughs> story i know but um <laughs> I, un, interestingly enough there are places in new york that are cheaper than you know places like austin uh which you mm. never thought would have happened but i think that <laughs> is like just to show that the the we're seeing maybe a repeat of that situation we saw with the financial crisis particularly in the housing industry and i wanted to ask you know as you were saying, we're seeing um, an increase in mortgages and auto loans. Do you think we're kind of preparing for another one of those? Not saying hardcore that we're going to see, you know, in the next year we're going to have another, you know, great recession. But just, uh, you know, are we seeing those same conditions pop up? I, I think to a certain extent we are. Uh, maybe not to the extent in the lead up to the 08 crash that you mentioned. Uh, but here in East Tennessee, I'm seeing some of the same things that you're saying, which is huge increases in uh, prices of, of homes. And it doesn't seem to make any sense. Like whenever, whenever you can say that sentence, then you've got to, you have to suspect that there's a, a bubble. You have to suspect that there's something fishy going on. Um, like even in the house, like we bought a house at the, uh, this house uh, at the beginning of uh, uh, 2020 great time to buy a house by the way <laughs> um, yeah and and since then the value of our house has gone up and in a way that i can't explain like i have i have i've done a few small projects around the house but i haven't done anything that um that would substantially increase the value of the house um but nevertheless when i look online at you know uh price estimates value estimates of houses in, in this area ours has, has gone up um and i can't explain why except to say that there's just a bubble there's just a lot of people trying to buy houses right now um and i and it's not just me in my house but i have a few uh realtor friends uh here in the same area and they're seeing the same thing and they're all saying that what's going on right now is crazy what the prices that people are paying for houses is it's just absurd mm -hmm. 
So I, I think I think you're right. I think we are seeing. I'm not. I don't know what stage we're in. I don't know if we're at the beginning stage of another housing bubble or if this is going to be short lived. But I do think that there's there's something fishy going on in the housing market simply because we see all these price level. Oh, excuse me, all these price increases. And we can't really put our finger on what exactly is driving it, except to say people have a lot more money to spend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that's very true, um, not just with the fact that we people were getting stimulus checks, and uh, but also you know now that um, restrictions have eased in some places, people's incomes aren't going back up. But also just more than that, I think uh, COVID has inspired a lot of people to move out of er areas particularly urban areas and move into rural areas because even rural areas are being hit by these massive price increases that you would have never seen even in the 08 mm -hmm. crisis i think like i was just uh i just saw a price for a house in um, a community called lockhart texas tiny little poor community this tiny little house that is not even as big as this house i'm in right now uh, yet it's almost a hundred thousand dollars more. It was like three hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars, but it's just this tiny little building in the middle mm -hmm. of nowhere, Texas. And yet, you know, people will pay these prices for these houses. And I think it is um, somewhat of a concerning thing to see, and, and definitely evidence of a bubble. Maybe not particularly exactly what we saw in '08, but something of the same vein in some area um ryan mcbacon uh i i think it was him uh he tweeted that he found somebody saying that line that we saw so much in the in the in the 2000s housing bubble uh which was the housing prices always go up they never go down and so if people are saying that sort of thing then we're definitely in a bubble for sure <laughs> yeah yeah for sure um but yeah, I think we touched on uh, most of the things I wanted to touch on. So um, I do really appreciate you explaining that. So now I want to give you the floor to promote anything of yours, um, anything you want my viewers to keep an eye out for, uh, to go look at, to, if you have any books that you're working on. Uh, a lot of people like to announce that they're working on a book right now at this time. So anything... You want to say the floor is yours? Sure. Uh, so uh, one uh, project that I uh, recently uh, finished working on was a contribution to a book edited by Pear Byland. Uh, it's uh, published by Edward Elger, a part of their Modern Guide series. And this is going to be a modern guide to Austrian economics. And uh, Arkadeusz Sierran and I uh, co-authored uh, the chapter on Austrian business cycle theory. So stay tuned, I, that's gonna be released sometime this year. Um, another uh, thing that I'm working on this year is the is another children's book. So I did The Broken Window, um, which was, it was a fun little project to, to get, um, to set the broken window parable to rhyme and then get somebody to illustrate it. Um, but I'm, I'm working on a follow, a, somewhat of a follow up to that that's based on Mises's master builder example, his analogy of the, of the business cycle and how we run out of resources to complete all the projects that we that we plan or that we started so so and it's called ludwig the builder so i'm going to use mises himself as the main mm -hmm. character he's gonna he's gonna wear a cute little you know construction worker outfit and a and a hard hat so uh looking forward to that and and uh i'm also working on 
some other uh, papers and projects. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't think I'm ready to announce anything about those things. But <laughs> yeah, I appreciate, no I appreciate pressure. The, the, the chance. Yeah, of course. And uh, I'll make sure to um, link your social media uh, in the description, but also uh, a link to your book because I, I think it is great that, um, you know, you are making more like ch children targeted content because I think something libertarians lack is that we produce all this content uh, for people to consume, but not for, you know, the younger ages, the, the ages that when people, you know, find new ideas and stuff. Um, I know I certainly, you know, found m plenty of ideas when I was younger, but there was nothing super targeted to me. It's all very thick <laughs> and long books. And uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I think it's great that you're making content like that. Um, but, yeah, I do appreciate you coming on so much. I think we had a good conversation and I think uh, plenty of people will be interested to hear it. Um and that you know it is very topical and lots of people are get l really confused with it all i think yep yeah well, thanks for having me on it's been yeah, a pleasure no problem about, um, um, in business yeah and i'd love to have you back on again too uh at some point when that new book comes out so yep thank sure. you so much thank you